Right after Jesus had called Philip to follow him, he went running to find his friend Nathanael. And when he found Nathanael, Philip excitedly said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael responded, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel's response reminded me of the time that I was going to perform the very first wedding that I ever officiated in, and we lived in Kansas City at the time. And in Kansas City, in order to perform weddings, you had to be registered at the county clerk's office, and you had to be a licensed preacher or, or, an, or an, an ordained minister. And I was excited about my first wedding, and so I went to the county clerk's office, and I walked up to the counter there, and I said that I was a licensed preacher and I brought my credentials with me and that I was there to register to perform weddings. And the woman sitting behind the desk, she didn't even get up. She looked over her glasses this way and said, big deal. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a big deal. Well, the town of Nazareth was no big deal. Nazareth had a well-deserved rotten reputation it was a small town of about 450 people located in the province of Galilee, located on one of the main caravan routes that connected the seaports on the Mediterranean Sea with the towns to the east. So traders and business people from many different nations busied the streets of Nazareth. The Roman city of Sepphoris, which was a large city of over 2,500 people, was only about six miles northwest of Nazareth. And so in order to get to Sepphoris, which was up on a hill, you had to pass through Nazareth. And Sepphoris was the capital city of the region of Galilee, which housed a large Roman garrison, as one historian put it. Sepphoris was rich. It was cosmopolitan, deeply influenced by Greek culture, and surrounded by a panoply of races and religions. Herod Antipas would later make Sepphoris the capital city when he ruled Judea. And so Nazareth was this little town outside of Sepphoris that was overrun by Gentiles, by Roman soldiers, as well as Herod's soldiers. And the only reason that the town had any prominence at all in history was that it was the hometown of Jesus. Nazareth was a shoddy, corrupt, halfway stop between the port cities and the towns inland. Anyone who thought of Nazareth thought of living among pagans, living among Romans and profiteers, and they thought of all the dregs of society that these kind of people attract. And even though there were people in Nazareth who tenaciously, tenaciously held to the traditional Jewish culture, they weren't well thought of by other Galileans. And they were especially maligned by those who lived in Judea in the southern province because they didn't like any Galileans. And in fact, the Jewish carpenters and the craftsmen who lived in Nazareth would have worked in the city of Sepphoris. And most certainly, a carpenter by the name of Joseph would have walked to Sepphoris on many occasions in order to practice his trade. Can any good come out of Nazareth? By popular consensus, not much. Probably not any. But Philip answered and said, Come and see. Come and see. 
So what do we see when we come to Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26? Luke chapter 1, beginning at the 26th verse. If you have your Bible handy, please turn there with me. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name, virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would open our minds this morning, Lord, that we might understand your word, that you would open our hearts, that we might have a love for you, Father, and that we might obey you in all things. And Father, we pray that you would open our ears, that we might hear what you, your Holy Spirit, says to us on this day. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The greatest news ever proclaimed in Israel came to a young woman living in Nazareth who would have been maybe 14 years old at the most, one of the humblest of Israel's people. And Mary even recognized this later when she praised God in what we call the Magnificent, which is recorded in Luke chapter 1. She cried out, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. And nine months later, it was to poor humbled shepherd outcast to whom the greatest news came when the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And whenever we consider those to whom the good news came, we really have to recite a list punctuated by the words poor and humble. Those whom Jesus called the poor in spirit. The word translated poor means to crouch, to cower, to be beggarly, to be needy. And of this, Martin Luther said, The angel might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter, who was fair, rich, clad in gold-embroidered raiment and tended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. 
When we come to the announcement of the angel to Mary, we must accept the essential spiritual fact of the incarnation. That is, God becoming flesh, that the Lord comes to needy people. The Lord comes to those who realize that without him, they cannot make it. The Lord comes to those who acknowledge their weaknesses and their spiritual lack. That is, the good news is not for the proud, it's not for the self-sufficient, it's not for the arrogant, because they are unable to receive it. So please turn once again to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The 26th verse of the first chapter of Luke. And, you know, I really don't know how angels think or, you know, when the Lord dispatches them, how they do that. We know that they go to minister to those who inherit salvation. But, and I don't know how all that works, how the Lord sends an angel to do a certain thing. But I have to think that given his record, Gabriel would have been a little more than concerned about a lowly maid in a mean town. Six months before, Gabriel had appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And in that encounter, on account of his unbelief, Zacharias was struck speechless, a condition that remained until his son was born. And Zacharias' encounter had been very similar to Gabriel's terrifying appearance to the prophet Daniel 500 years before, where the same thing had had, had happened. And so what about Mary? If Zacharias and Daniel didn't handle it well, what about this young, humble woman? Verse 26 of Luke chapter 1 says, Now in the sixth month, that would have been in the sixth month of, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. In Nazareth lived a young woman, a young virgin named Mary. She was engaged to a man by the name of Joseph. And Mary would have been 13 or 14 years old at the most. And when a young woman reached puberty, she was old enough to marry. Joseph probably would have been a little bit older because he would not marry until he could provide a house for his family and make a living and, and support a wife and family. You know, it's really interesting that this whole idea of teenagers, those that we call teenagers today, it, it's a relatively new idea in culture and society. In medieval days, at age 13 or 14, a young man would go to university or more likely begin an apprenticeship, either with his father or someone else at the age of nine or ten, or work with his father out in the fields at that age. It was the same in colonial America. Benjamin Franklin apprenticed in a, as a printer at age 14. Young men attended Yale or Harvard when they were 13 or 14 years old. And John Quincy Adams, who became the sixth president of the United States, at age 10, served in diplomatic service in France with his father, John Adams. And at age 14, John Quincy traveled to St. Petersburg, Russia, where he served as the secretary of American diplomat, diplomat Francis Dana. Now that is unusual, but it shows that by the age of 14, a young man was already gainfully employed in a trade or in farming and was preparing himself to support a wife and family. Now, Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married, 
The betrothal period lasted a year in those days. It was legally a binding. binding. In fact, it took a formal divorce to get out of the engagement. And this year-long period gave the couple the opportunity to get to know one another. And all the while, Joseph would have been spent the time building their house where they're going to live and raise their family. And he would have been practicing his trade, which was that of a, of a carpenter. Now, meeting the angel Gabriel would have been intimidating for Mary, to say the least. His appearance probably wasn't as awesome to this young woman as it was with Daniel or Zacharias, but Mary would have been frightened out of her senses. In verse 29, the New American Standard Bible says she was perplexed. That's really not a good translation. The English Standard Version says that she was greatly troubled. It's the same word used to describe King Herod when the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And it says, Herod was troubled, there's our word, and all Jerusalem with him. It's the same word that described Zacharias when Gabriel appeared to him. The word means to be deeply agitated, to agitate greatly, all stirred up and troubled inside. Mary probably felt like she was going to pass out maybe even needed to sit down. It's like Gabriel comes into the house and blurts out this buoyant greeting. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, Gabriel's greeting consisted of two parts. First of all, Mary was favored by God. Literally, she was graced by God. She was a recipient of God's grace, his unmerited favor. And Gabriel said, greetings, favored one. And the word translated greetings literally means to rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You are the one who is graced by God. Mary was the recipient of God's special favor. Her humble estate, her matching humility made her the ideal receptor of God's greatest favor. No woman has ever lived on earth of whom God has shown such grace. God bypassed Judea, Jerusalem, and the temple, came to a despised country, a despised town, and a humble young woman. The second part of her being divinely favored is Gabriel's declaration, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. It was essential to know, for Mary to know that the Lord was with her. His presence would be with her that he would go with her in the same way that he went with the great saints of the Old Testament. It echoes the words of Moses when he was encouraging Joshua. Joshua was going to lead God's people into the promised land, and and uh, Moses was encouraging the people, and Joshua, it's back in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy, the 31st chapter, beginning at, at verse 6. And Moses here, it's his last counsel to the people, before Joshua leads them into the promised land. And Joshua says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 31, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble for them, at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. In Hebrews 13:5, we're familiar that says, uh, you know, the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. And then verse 7, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn 
to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Mary will soon learn that the Lord will be with her when she tells Joseph that she's already pregnant. The Lord will be with her when they journey to Bethlehem right before she's about ready to give birth. The Lord will be with her when they escape the sword of Herod from Bethlehem. And the Lord will be with her when she sees her son hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. Mary's response to Gabriel's greeting shows us what kind of person she was. Verse 29 of Luke chapter 1 again says that, uh, But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this may be. The literal sense is she kept thinking it over in her mind. She kept pondering the meaning of Gabriel's salutation. She she meditated on it, trying to figure out its significance. And it really is truly a remarkable picture of a remarkable young woman. She was young. She was inexperienced. But she was not a flighty, shallow young thing. She was reflective and meditative. meditative. When I think of the reflective spirit of Mary, I also think of the reflective spirit of a woman by the name of of Sarah Edwards. Sarah Edwards was the wife of Jonathan Edwards, who was used greatly of God in the Great Awakening in our country in the, the 18th century. And little is known about Sarah Edwards' early life, except that she was born in 1710 to James Pierpont, Point, Pierpont, one of the most foremost founders of Yale. And even as a young girl, she was noted for her piety. And years before her marriage to Jonathan Edwards, when she was only 13, Jonathan Edwards wrote this of her. They say there's a young lady in New Haven who is loved by that great being who made and rules the world. And that there are certain seasons in which this great being, in some way or other invisible, that she hardly cares for or comes to her, and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. You cannot persuade her to do anything that is wrong or sinful. If you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure. She loves to be alone and seems to have some invisible, some, someone invisible always conversing with her. You know, this hits on something that we need to teach our kids and grandkids that a young man, a young woman, even a a child does not have to wait until they're all grown up to have an intimate, loving, grace-filled relationship with God. God wants to meet us right where we are right now, no matter what our age is. No matter what our age is, we can know the depths of God's love. We can understand and experience the wealth of his grace and his favor and the glory of his immediate presence at any age. 
And after Gabriel's greeting, his next words were shocking. And this is going to raise even more questions in Mary's mind. In verse 30 of Luke chapter 1, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Mary was told that she's going to have a baby boy, that she and she was commanded to name him Jesus, and, and this news was a thunderbolt. Now, Jesus was a common name. The Hebrew is Joshua, or Yeshua. It means the Lord saves, or, or Savior. But Mary would have, would not have grasped its full impact at this point. So Gabriel continued in verse 32. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary was hearing that she would be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. This she would understand. In fact, Gabriel's words here were a free interpretation of Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 7, which we know as the Davidic covenant. That is, the Messiah will reign on the forever throne of David. And no doubt, Mary would have had heard these words often growing up in the synagogue. Every Jew knew of the messianic implications of these words. These words would have been familiar to Mary, as familiar to us as the, the second, the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Mary did not doubt these words that she would be the mother of the Son of the Most High. In fact, she understood the gist of Gabriel's announcement. She would become pregnant. She would name her son Jesus. He will be the Messiah, the promised long-awaited, who will sit on the throne of David. And humble, reflective Mary thought about it, and she understood. But she wondered about the physical mechanics of this. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Mary was not disbelieving here. She was simply asking for enlightenment. How are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? So the angel answered in verse 35 and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Be called the Son of God. There really aren't any sexual overtones here. The word overshadow gives us the proper understanding of this. The, the word is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the presence in the sanctuary where Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The presence of God had overshadowed it and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle. It's used in the New Testament for the overshadowing presence of the transfiguration where Jesus was transformed into his glory and where the cloud of glory overshadowed our Lord and the apostles who were with him. However this happened biologically, one thing is certain. What was described by Gabriel is nothing less than the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Charles Wesley put it this way in his second verse of Hark the herald angels sing. 
Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the favored one. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Gabriel's mission was now complete, but he left Mary with a sign. A sign. When we obey God and walk with him in his presence, we're not left out there all alone. God gives us confirmation along the way. In the Old Testament, we see how God confirmed his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By faith, Abraham obeyed God, going out to a place not knowing where he was going, but at crucial places along the way, God made himself known and confirmed his promises. And in fact, every time God made himself known in a particular way, the promises increases, increased. And so, so God confirmed each one along the way. And it's the same way in our own lives as we walk with God. By faith, we obey God, but at crucial times along the way, God comes to us and confirms with us what we are to do and where we are to go as we seek his will. And so now Gabriel leaves Mary with a sign, and we see the sign in verse 36. Mary, this is how you will know that these things will come true. Verse 36, and he says to her, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy in her old age had been hidden from Mary by Elizabeth, hidden from everybody. Remember, Elizabeth spent six months in seclusion in the hill country. This amazing news about Elizabeth and then the time that Mary will spend with this elderly, godly woman would prove a great help to Mary. Not only did God give a sign to confirm his promise that Elizabeth has a miraculous uh, uh, conception in her old age, but he also gave Mary this godly mature woman to walk alongside her and share these miraculous events. And finally, Gabriel's parting words said it all as he proclaimed, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible. Literally, it is, for not impossible will be every word of God. These words are an allusion to the Lord's words back in the Old Testament to Sarah, who was barren, confirming that she would bear Isaac in her old age. The Lord said to them, Abraham and Sarah, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. God would fulfill his word. Nothing is too difficult for God. It's as simple as that. Mary knew instinctively that her story would be questioned. No one's, in fact, no one's going to believe this except Zacharias and Elizabeth. Joseph isn't going to believe it at first. It's going to take another visitation by Gabriel to convince Joseph that this is true. Mary knew that the penalty for adultery was death if someone pressed the issue. New Testament history records that on, that Jesus' enemies on more than one occasion implied that he was illegitimate. 
And in light of these daunting realities, we see Mary's worthy response. In verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. These are the words that bring God's blessing. These are the words that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be done according to your word. Mary totally and completely surrendered herself to God. She didn't say it with clenched lips or with a sense of resignation or regret. She said it with joy and she said it with expectancy. I want to close with some brief reflections I've gotten from Pastor Kent Hughes of of Wheaton Bible Church. He says, first of all, Mary was humble and poor in spirit. That is, she was not self-sufficient, and her posture of humility, the posture of her heart, made her open to the grace of God so that Gabriel could say, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. And for this Mary was and is called blessed. And secondly, Mary's reflective, meditative nature made her open to the word and the work of God. She was not superficial because this, because of this, she was and is called blessed. Thirdly, Mary was believing regarding God's power. She wondered about the mechanics of God's grace, but she knew he could do as he promised. And because of this, she was and is called blessed. And lastly, Mary gave herself in profound submission to God. She gave herself in profound submission to God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And for this she was and is called blessed. If Christ is in us so that we are God's children, then Mary's heart is a model for our own discipleship, which means that we as well must cultivate a humble a humble heart. We must cultivate an ongoing spirit, a uh, poverty of spirit that is not an open, not only open to God's grace, but desperately longs for it. And we must also intentionally nurture a reflective heart that meditates on God's word. And next, we must have believing hearts modeled on the dynamic certitude of Mary's heart. Now, faith is being sure of what is hoped for, of certain of what we do not see. And finally, we must have a submissive heart. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for the example of this very remarkable young woman. A woman who had a humble heart and was submissive to you, Father. May we develop the same humility in our own lives. A woman who had this reflective heart as she meditated on God's word and what you had said to her, Father. And may we develop this in our own hearts as well, Father. And give us believing hearts that we might have that faith as being sure of what is hoped for and certain of what we do not see. And Father, we pray that we would also have submissive hearts. 
that we would be your servant, Lord, your servants, and that we would have that heart that would say, may it be to me as you have, have said. Father, we thank you that each one of us, like Mary, can come to you at any time with whatever is in our heart's desire. And Father, there are times when you come to us through your Holy Spirit and make yourself known to us, Father. Thank you that we're not out there on our own trying to figure out the problems and and uh, certitudes of life all by ourselves, Father. But uh, you love us, you care for us, you minister to us. And yes, you do, as the word has said, send your angels to us who are ministering to us, to us who are the recipients of your grace and your promises. And for this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.